Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I'm going to choose my words wisely here at the beginning, so you'll excuse me if I pause occasionally to think through things. Here in the 21st century, and especially here in the Western world, we have sanitized the God of the Bible. We have reduced him to kind of bite-sized chunks that we're comfortable with. We have decreased his personality, his characteristics that are described in the Bible, down to just those that we like, just those that we're comfortable with. In most sermons that you hear these days, you'll hear about the God of love or the God of peace and the God of forgiveness. But that is not the sum total of the God that Isaiah knows. The God that Isaiah is writing about is the God who, when he first encountered him, he fell on his face and said, Woe is me, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And that God, seated high and lifted up, majestic on his throne, had angels who were declaring his holiness repeatedly. And that God that God who we rightly ought to fear, who we rightly ought to reverence. That God is the God that Isaiah knows. So when he writes about the covenant-keeping God, when he writes about the God who does things according to his own will and for the purpose of his own reputation, he's describing a God who is holy and completely other than us, who is not dependent on us, not dependent on any human being, but who is driving history forward according to his own plan, according to his own desires, according to his own holiness. And that sense of reverential fear just doesn't seem to exist anymore in the 21st century sanitized Bible. So... If you think about Israel, when they first encountered Yahweh, when they were at Mount Sinai, and when God appeared before them, there was darkness and a thick cloud and lightning and thunders, and the voice of God was overwhelming to them, so much so that they came to Moses and said, essentially, you go talk to him. Because that's very, very frightening. That's the God that Isaiah knows. That's the God that Israel in the Old Testament knows. The God who is the God who brings about rain, who gives them food, who gives them sustenance, who protects them from their enemies, who protects them from the wild animals. The God who gave them the land that they live in. That's a very kind and providing and gracious God. But he is also the God 
who knows how to demonstrate his anger. He is the God who opens up the earth and swallows people whole. He is the God who brings plagues. He is the God who brings enemy armies. In other words, he is not only their sustenance and their provision, but when he raises himself up in judgment, when he raises himself up to demonstrate his righteousness and his holiness, he is also their worst fear. And we don't have that sense anymore. It is only if you understand the full-orbed character of God, if you understand that he is perfectly willing to show his judgment, to demonstrate his righteousness, that he is altogether holy, and that he is perfectly willing to demonstrate his wrath, his fiery indignation. Only then can you understand the necessity of Christ. Only then can you understand why you need a mediator between you and that God, because we are, by nature, as Paul said, children of wrath. And that's children of God's wrath. And we are told that we are to fear and to reverence God, to understand that to be an enemy of God is to incur on ourselves eternal judgment that is rightly deserved. That's the God that Isaiah knows. That's the God that Isaiah is writing about. And that's the God that Jesus knows. That's the God that Paul knows. And that's why they put so much emphasis on the necessity of the finished work of Christ to save us from the wrath of that God. And it was that God who constructed the methodology through which he would preserve us from his own wrath. But he is a God who is described all the way through the Bible in these kind of Phrases with these kinds of words, with this kind of demonstrations of his wrath, of his anger, of his consuming fire. And I don't think we know what that means. We, we don't comprehend that because, again, we've sort of cleaned up and sanitized our concept of God. But God is described repeatedly as a consuming fire. Now, granted, yes, God is love. Bible says so. But if you truncate his personality to simply God is love, then you're not talking about the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is also the God who will pour out his judgment. And he repeats that declaration, that prophecy of judgment, over and over and over again. And... Great tribulation, Jesus talked about. The day of the Lord, which is darkness and not light. A time when every man is running around with his hands on his loins, bent over like a woman giving birth there in so much pain. The God who, when he returns, people run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth, and they cry to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from that God. Hide us from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. And so it is important for us to remember in our Christian 
contextualization of what our life is and what it means and what our theology is and what the Bible says. It's really important to remember who Yahweh is and what Yahweh is like and how astounding it is that we're told to come boldly to the throne of grace. This is a God you don't come running into the presence of. This is a God who encases himself in a light that no man approaches. And yet we're told that through Christ, through grace, we have ready access to that God. We can cry, Abba, Father, to him. But to those who are without, to those who are not in Christ, they have nothing waiting for them but the sure and certain wrath and anger and fiery indignation of God. We are in Isaiah 33 tonight. And he is going to begin at verse 14 describing what sinners are like before God. One of the most famous sermons of church history is sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that concept comes right from what we're about to read in Isaiah 33 at verse 14. But before we start there, just so that we can get some context and so that we can understand the God that Isaiah is talking about, let me throw out a few descriptions of God right from the Bible. When Moses was warning Israel against making idols and explaining to them that Yahweh was the one God, the only God, the only God who deserved worship, he said in Deuteronomy 4, starting at verse 23, He said, be careful that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God. What was the covenant from Mount Sinai? It was the law. It was the ordinances. Be careful to do them. And by the way, they include, you'll have no other gods before me. And right behind that, don't make any graven images. And right after that, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember that the Lord your God is the God of this covenant And be careful that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make an idol for yourselves in the form of anything that he has forbidden you. For the Lord our God is a consuming fire. Notice that he was advocating for obedience, not based on, well, God is a big, lovable marshmallow of a teddy bear. And he's just so good to you that you just want to react to him and and do good things and be generally good because, you know, he's a likable guy. Instead, Moses' warning was, our God will consume you. Our God will burn you up. And then he adds, he's a jealous God. That helps us understand not only the characteristic of God, but what it means that he is a consuming fire. Among human beings, the green-eyed monster of jealousy is a bad character trait. It's a bad personality trait. But the jealousy of God is such that once he has poured out benefits on people, once he has chosen a people, once he has blessed a people, those people belong to him. The same way that if Micah were to see April showing affection to anybody else, he would naturally become jealous. And he would say, no, my wife, you're my 
wife. That's an appropriate bit of jealousy. Same thing with God. When he sees you and you belong to him and he has blessed you and he has called you and then he sees you showing affection for some other God, for some other idol, for anything else other than primarily himself, he becomes a jealous God and he demonstrates his jealousy. He pours out that jealousy through punishment. He's a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 9, I'm going to start reading at verse 1. I'm going to read eight verses. It says, Hear, O Israel, today you are about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations that are greater and stronger than you with large cities that are fortified to the heavens, up to the skies. The people are strong and tall. They are the descendants of the Anakim. Those were the people who were the giants. You know about them, and you've heard it said, who can stand up to the sons of Anak? But understand that today the Lord your God goes before, but understand that today the Lord your God goes across ahead of you, and he is a consuming fire. So this concept of God as a consuming fire is a God of judgment, but also a God of protection. When Israel was led out of Egypt, when they got to the Red Sea, God separated the armies of Egypt from the children of Israel by a pillar, a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke, fire to light up the sky so that the children of Israel could see their way clear through the sea, and a pillar of smoke to bring darkness in order to stop the armies of Egypt. So this fire of God works for the benefit of his people and acts as a judgment against his people and acts as a judgment against his enemies. Who can stand up against the sons of Anak? But understand that today the Lord God goes across ahead of you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So what does a consuming fire do? It consumes and it destroys. That's the idea of him not just being a fire, but a consuming fire. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them swiftly, as the Lord has promised you. When the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say in your heart, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Rather, the Lord is driving out these nations before you because of their wickedness. So even then, as God was providing the promised land to the children of Israel, just as he had promised them, he wanted to make sure that they didn't think that they had achieved a level of righteousness where God was comparing them to the other nations and saying, Israel is so much better than these foreign nations. I'm going to consume the foreign nations so that I can give the land to Israel because they're just so much better. And that theology, I think, carries over to today. We have to remember that God is not blessing us. God did not call us. God is not protecting us and forgiving us because we're so darned good. 
He's doing it because of promises that he has made and his trustworthiness, his faithfulness to himself. The Lord, Yahweh, is driving out these nations before you because of their wickedness, not because of your righteousness. Verse 5, it is not because of your righteousness or your uprightness of heart that you are going in to possess their land, but it is because of their wickedness that the Lord your God is driving out these nations before you to keep the promise he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this land to possess it, because you are a stiff-necked people. So God is saying, here's two groups of people, a stiff-necked group of people who I chose and a wicked group of people who are my enemies. And because of the wickedness of that group, I'm going to drive them out of the land so that I can give it to the stiff-necked group. And I'm doing it because of promises I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am not doing it because Israel is so much better than the nations I'm driving out. And how does he differentiate between the two? By the fire, by the consuming fire. The consuming fire that is meant to purify one group and destroy another group. And we don't think of God as consuming fire. And yet that is exactly the way that he is described over and over again. In Isaiah 30, we just read it three weeks ago. I can do the math. Isaiah 30, starting at verse 27, we read, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense smoke. Well, that's exactly the image with which he separated Israel from Egypt. As dense smoke on one side and fire on the other side, that's the God Isaiah knows. He says, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense smoke. His lips are full of fury. Do you think of God as having lips full of fury? You can understand why Isaiah would say, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We are sinners. We talk sin. We conspire sin. We live in this sinfulness, in this depravity. And you, God, are completely correct, completely holy, completely just in pouring out your punishment with your lips of fury. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is a consuming fire. All he has to do is speak the word the same way that he spoke, let there be light, and there was light. The same way that he spoke all creation into being, he can speak judgment to people. He can speak consuming fire to people. And if he turns those lips of fury and those tongues of fire toward you, you have no ability to withstand it. The judgment of God is going to win out every single time. His breath is like a rushing torrent that rises to the neck. In other words, a flood that comes all the way up to your neck and is about to completely drown you. He comes to sift the nations in a sieve of destruction. He bridles the jaws of the people to lead them astray. 
where that's a really sovereign verse he puts bridles in the jaws of people in order to lead them astray so now you've got people who he has chosen who he is leading toward righteousness who because of unconditional promises that he has already made he is leading them to a glorious future and the promises that he has given them but then you have the people who like Paul has written the very people who were fitted for destruction they were made for the purpose of destruction that's not a New Testament concept that's not something that Paul dreamed up Isaiah says it back here he puts hooks in the jaws of people like bridles and bits to drive a horse and he drives those peoples to lead them astray because he is absolutely sovereign and completely in charge of everything and everybody that's the God that Isaiah knows that concept is then picked up in Hebrews 12 I'm going to read 10 verses from verse 18 to verse 28 this is the way that the Hebrew writing to Hebrews understanding what the Old Testament has already said in describing Yahweh this is what he says for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire he's talking about Mount Sinai and he says you haven't been called to Mount Sinai you haven't been called to the law he's about to compare your calling, your called to Christ, your called to better promises. But look at the way that he describes God at Mount Sinai. It's not all light and happiness. It's not all cheerfulness, dancing and tambourines. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire. There's God. When God shows up, there's a burning fire to darkness to gloom, to a storm. That's how it's described. All the way back in the book of Exodus. There's thunders, there's lightning, there's voices, and it's terrifying. And it causes the people to fear because now they know the kind of God they're dealing with. It's not some kind of God that they can fashion with their own hands or carry on their own shoulders or make say what they want them to say. It's the God who is sovereign enough to do whatever he wants to do, who is holy enough to pour out his righteous judgment, and who is so completely unlike us that his very appearance, his very presence causes fear and darkness and gloom and storms and a trumpet blast and a voice that made its hearers beg that no further word would be spoken to them. So here they are, Israel, being delivered by that God, brought to Mount Sinai, and now they've come face to face, as it were, with that God, and they are so terrified by him, they tell Moses, go tell him not to do that anymore, because that was really frightening and so you go talk to him, and then you come tell us what he said. Because we don't want to hear that voice, because it is terrifying. 
You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burned with fire to darkness and gloom and a storm to a trumpet blast or to a voice that made its hearers beg that no further word be spoken to them for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches that mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Okay, that's how the writer of Hebrews describes the presence of God when he showed up at Mount Sinai. This consuming fire God. This God of extreme otherness and holiness and righteousness and utter command of his universe. It's a terrifying thing for human beings, fleshly people like us, to stand before a God like that. Verse 22 says, instead, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to myriads of angels in joyful assembly and to the congregation of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's a huge contrast. You've come to the God of comfort and peace because of Jesus Christ, because of what he has finished on your behalf, not because you're good, not because you're the righteous ones, but because of the mercy and the grace of God, he has separated you from that mountain that is full of fear and trembling to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Since that is the contrast, verse 25 says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if the people did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, okay, that's talking about Mount Sinai, when God gave the law and said, do it and live, don't do it, I will judge you, he warned them at Mount Sinai here on the earth. If the people did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on the earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven? Christ came from heaven and came and warned us about the judgment of God and about the tribulation to come and about the day of the Lord. He wasn't afraid to talk about all that stuff. He was willing to tell us that God is, in fact, a consuming fire. He's a God of judgment. At that time, back there at Mount Sinai, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but heaven as well. And the words once more signify the removal of what can be shaken. That is, all created things, so that the unshakable may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us be filled with gratitude and so worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe because our God is a consuming fire. So whether we're talking about Old Testament or New Testament, we're talking about the God who is 
a consuming fire, and that ought to inspire reverence and awe and appropriate fear before him because he is perfectly capable of judging his enemies and he's perfectly willing to judge his enemies. You ought to be very, very happy that because of his grace and his choice and his election and his son and his sacrifice, for all those reasons, you, though sinful, won't stand before the judgment of the consuming fire God. Isaiah 33, starting in verse 13. Well, let's start at verse 12. And the peoples will be burned to lime, like cut thorns which are burned in a fire. There it is, that consuming fire of God language again. When God comes up against his enemies, he's a consuming fire to them. You who are far away, hear what I have done. And you who are near, Acknowledge my might. We looked at that at the end of last week. This is God saying that he pours out that consuming fire characteristic and nature of his so that people who are right there by him, who see the judgment poured out on the armies of the Assyrians, are going to learn to fear him. They're going to recognize and acknowledge his power, his might, his strength, his ability to protect them. But also those who are far away are going to hear about what God has done. So the end result is going to be that God is glorified, God's reputation is amplified, and people know about the God of Israel because of the way he pours out his judgment and his consuming fire. And then in verse 14, there's a warning to the sinners who are in Zion, the sinners who already have the advantage of having the law of God, the covenant of God, the prophets of God. They've already been told what God expects of them. Sinners in Zion are terrified. That's that God that Isaiah knows, that God who's perfectly willing to terrify those who are not obedient to him. Trembling has seized the godless. Well, yeah, the same way that Isaiah himself trembled when he stood before that God. He knows that when that God comes before his enemies, they're going to be terrified. They're going to be trembling. And then look at the next phrase, who among us can live with the consuming fire? So he's using that phrase, the consuming fire, because it is one of the descriptors of God that has been around ever since Mount Sinai, that is carried over into the New Testament because it is identifying, it is defining for us the sort of God that we are dealing with and we, fleshly mortals, which of us can possibly live which of us can stand? Which of us will survive when the consuming fire pours out his wrath? Mm-hmm. Now you get some sense of what the day of the Lord is about. Now you get some sense of how terrible it's going to be and why the Bible would say, why God would say, you who desire the day of the Lord, it's going to be a day of darkness and a day of gloom. 
It's going to be a day of pain, anguish. God, the consuming fire, is going to pour out his judgment. And who can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? Now, that does sound an awful lot like what Jesus said, that there are some who were going to be cast into Gehenna where the worm never sleeps and the fire is never quenched. To the Jewish mind, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, one of the most destructive elements that they ever came in contact with was fire. All the way back to the time of Nebuchadnezzar, when he attacked Jerusalem, he burned it. 70 AD, same thing, fire. It's one of the most destructive elements on planet Earth to this very day. And that's the element that God grabs a hold of and says, that's what I'm like. I consume everything in my path the same way that fire consumes everything in its path. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with the continual burning? What's the answer to the question? None of us. Nobody, not a one of us, is able to stand. And that's the God Isaiah knows. That's the God Isaiah is describing and saying, you can't possibly stand against the judgment of a righteous and a holy God. He will utterly consume you and you will burn forever. Man, it's a good thing he came up with the notion of a redeemer. Amen. Verse 15, now he's going to answer the question, who's going to stand before that God? It is he who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. That's somebody who's following after the law of God. He rejects unjust gain and he shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. In other words, he puts his hands out like this, kind of like the, the dealers in Las Vegas who... Clap their hands and show them to the camera so that you know they're not walking away with chips. It's the same idea that a man would shake his hands so that you know he's not carrying a bribe to get his way. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed. In other words, he doesn't keep company with those who are conspiring to go shed blood. He doesn't want to hear it. He's no part of it. And he shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He, that kind of person who follows after the commands of God, he will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. Unquestionably, that has a foreshadow of Christ. Christ refers to himself oftentimes as the rock. He is the impregnable rock. No one can knock him down. No one can conquer him. And so those who do righteously before God are going to dwell on the heights, whether that's talking about Jerusalem now, which is up on a raised hill, or whether it's new Jerusalem that comes down out of the heavens. That is our ultimate resting place. And our refuge is going to be in the impregnable rock. That person's bread will be given to him and his water will be sure. I've talked about this many times through the years, but living in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, job one every single day was 
find food. And find water. Find decent water. Find water that doesn't make you sick. Find water that is living water, not bitter water. And here, those who have walked with God, who stand in the heights, who trust in the impregnable rock, are going to be given what they need to eat, and they're going to be given pure water to drink. And your eyes will see the king in his beauty. Unquestionably, that's a messianic verse. They're going to look upon their king, but remember the audience that Isaiah is writing to. He's writing to Israel, who have all these promises of a kingdom to come, and their messianic king is going to reign in his beauty. And they will behold a far distant land. And depending on who you're reading, that can be talking about the final geographical land that God is going to give to Israel, which they have never yet possessed. Or it can be referring to all the land of the earth that Christ is going to rule over ultimately in all the Gentile nations. Or it can be referring to the heavenly city that's coming. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Your heart will meditate on terror. In other words, you're going to think back on what you used to be like. And where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? These are all things that people did in order to secure themselves, in order to protect themselves, and oftentimes in order to cheat others. And he says, they're not going to be like that anymore. You're going to look back on those days and realize the change that you've gone through. Verse 19, you will no longer see a fierce people. Now, this is a really interesting description because when the Assyrians did attack Israel and make their way all the way to the borders of Judah, the Assyrians spoke a language that the Jews didn't speak. They didn't understand the Assyrian tongue. So God says you're no longer going to see the fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech that no one comprehends. You, my people Israel, aren't going to understand what these people are saying. All you're going to know is they're fierce and they're warriors and they're out to conquer. But you're no longer going to see them. I'm going to wipe out your enemies, that God of a consuming fire. They are a people of unintelligible speech, which no one comprehends, and of stammering tongues, which no one understands. In other words, if you were listening to them speak and didn't understand their language, it would sound like gibberish to you. Look upon Zion, says verse 20. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes shall see Jerusalem an undisturbed habitation, a tent which shall not be folded up. Its stakes shall never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn apart. That's the promise of the establishment of an everlasting kingdom in Jerusalem. Very specific. In Zion, in Jerusalem, look on that city, the very same city where you have to come for your appointed feast. That's the earthly city. This isn't a reference to heaven. 
This isn't a reference to anything else than physical Jerusalem sitting over there in the physical Middle East, the very city where they had to go on a continual basis to keep their feasts. God couldn't be more specific with his physicality. That particular Zion, that's the mount, and the city that is on the mountain is Jerusalem, and it's the place where you go for your appointed feasts, and that's going to be an undisturbed habitation. That hasn't happened yet. Israel right now is still a very disturbed habitation, still under threat from their enemies. But it will one day be a tent that shall not be folded, and its stakes shall never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn apart. But there, the majestic one, the Lord, Yahweh, shall be for us a place of rivers and wide canals. Isaiah is now poetically describing the kind of refreshing that is going to come from God, who is a consuming fire to his enemies. And what puts out fire? Water. Water. He'll be to us the water that keeps us from the fire. Mm -hmm. He will be rivers and he will be canals to us on which no boat with oars shall go, and on which no mighty ship shall pass. In other words, when the enemies came in their ships, you've probably seen films at some point of the kind of boats that had under rowers underneath that were constantly rowing to keep the ship moving forward. Up on top were all the soldiers ready to fight. He said, there's not going to be any of those boats. There's not going to be any mighty ships. There's not going to be any warships coming down that river. This is going to be a river of peace. This is going to be a river of sanctity. This is going to be a river of refreshing. Why? Verse 22, because the Lord is our judge. The Lord, all of those are capital L-O-R-D. This is the proper name of God, Yahweh. For Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. Yahweh is our king, and he will save us. And then Isaiah enters a little bit of a poetic description yet again. And he starts describing the armies, which he calls the ships of the Assyrians that are coming to attack Jerusalem. And he says, your tackle hangs slack. Okay, that's part of a ship that keeps the sail up. It cannot hold the base of its mast firmly, nor spread out the sail. And then the prey of an abundant spoil will be divided, and the lame will take the plunder. In other words, what he has just described is a serious shipwreck. And when the ship wrecks, even the lame are going to be down there taking the stuff from Assyria. Even the people who don't have any strength are going to be easily, they don't have to go to war, they don't have to go fight, they're just going to be taking riches and plunder for themselves because God is going to shipwreck Assyria. And no resident will say, I am sick, and the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. I think, again, Isaiah just leapt out to the new Jerusalem, 
to the ultimate glorious kingdom that's coming for Israel because he describes them as none of them being sick. And most importantly, every one of them will be forgiven their sins. I think he's talking about more than just physical sickness here when he says none of them are going to be sick because Isaiah has used this language of sickness repeatedly and is going to again to say that the whole body, all of Israel, is sick and that its wound, that God wounded it with, is incurable. And therefore, it is only God who can cure them, who can put salve on their wounds, who can bandage up their wounds, who can repair them. And so it's more than just physical sickness. God is saying he is going to restore Israel and bring them back to health. I guess it's worth pointing out at this point that this is the same Isaiah who is going to say in months to come when we finally get there, when he's finally describing the death of Christ, he says, and by his stripes we are healed. He's not talking about physical healing there. Otherwise, the Pentecostals would be correct, and nobody who believed in Christ would ever get sick. What he's describing is the same thing that Isaiah has described all the way through his prophecy, through his multiple prophecies. He has said that Israel was sick. Israel has been bruised by God. They have been wounded by God. Their wound is incurable. But it is God who is going to heal them as well. And then he describes it as the people who dwell there will be forgiven for their iniquity. That's the ultimate healing. You don't get much more healed than God himself, the very God who said that because of the breaking of his law, because of the rebellion of human beings, because of our fall into sinfulness, that's the reason that we get sick, that we get old, and that we die. Part of the healing of God is that he forgives the iniquity that's killing you. Not just killing you physically, but killing you eternally. He is protecting you from his own consuming fire, and he is going to become a fountain of life, the way Jesus describes it. There's all this water imagery. He's going to become a canal. He's going to become a river. His righteousness is going to cover the earth the way the seas, the way the oceans cover the earth. There's all this water language to protect us from the wrath of God that is described as a consuming fire. So the more you understand about the God that Isaiah knows and that Isaiah describes, and the more you know about the judgment, the righteousness, the holiness, and the consuming fire characteristic of God, the more you can recognize the value of Christ in your life and the necessity of Christ as a mediator between you and the judgment of that God. And that's what Isaiah is describing over and over, not only for us, but for Israel. That is the God that Isaiah knows. Mm Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.